And so for for a missionary, for an evangelist, this scenario, these kind of reactions are just par for the course. These are the reactions that are to be accepted and expected. If you want to go do mission work, if you want to show up in some random city, some random area, uh, if you're not ready for the opposition, if you're not ready for the rejection, you might as well just purchase a round-trip ticket out of the gate because it's going to be a short mission trip if you're not ready to be opposed. I should have done this before, but try to find the map that shows uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. I should have, I should have done this earlier because I think it is helpful to actually see um, on the map these cities, to see the waters, to see the distances that the Apostle Paul traveled to do this missionary work that he's accomplishing here in his, his first missionary journey. That's where we're at. Acts chapter 14 is, is finishing the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. So just, just put your finger there in the back if you can find it. Um, but let me read a couple of verses here in Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. Then we'll pray, then we'll dive into Acts chapter 14. Acts 14 verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that that your gospel has been brought to our cities. Lord, the cities that we were living in when your, the word of your Son was brought to us, Lord, we thank you that, that your gospel has crossed land and sea and ultimately come to our ears, Lord. We thank you that the gospel wasn't alone, but that by your Spirit, Lord, we were able to believe the gospel, Lord, and we thank you for saving us. We thank you for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to us. Lord, we pray that even in this hour, Lord, in, in, in reading how the gospel was spread, Lord, that, that our faith would be strengthened, Lord, that we would be stirred up to continue in the faith, Lord. Keep us, Lord, we pray. We don't know the future, Lord, just as Abraham went out not knowing what was going to come, Lord, we don't know what our lives are going to bring, Lord. Um, As we'll see, there's hardships to be expected, Lord, but we pray you would use even these words today to to have us ready to weather the storms, that that we would suffer well. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we are continuing through the Apostle Paul's and Barnabas's first missionary journey today. We're actually going to wrap up that first missionary journey. The Apostles are going to actually make it home back to Antioch to their first, uh, to their home church that sent them out. If you look here at Acts chapter 14, if you have an ESV, I'm actually going to follow uh, the headings here given in the ESV for the most part, these are helpful because the chapter's kind of broken up by which cities the apostles are going to visit throughout this chapter. So if you see verses 1 through 6, the missionaries are in a city called Iconium. 8 through 12, they're in Lystra. And then 24 through 28, they're actually going to make the journey back to Antioch. They're going to make it back to their home church. So let's, let's begin here with Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. And if you want, I had a note to look at the map. Maria's looking at it. If you want to flip back to the map, flip back to your map, and let's just get kind of an idea of where, where we're presently at here 
on the map. I have one in my Bible. So all of this began, my Bible actually marks out the starting point. Look for Antioch. There's actually two Antiochs. It's the one directly north of Jerusalem. That's where the apostles left from. That's where the home church is. If you see, they sailed across the Mediterranean. They went to that island of Cyprus. It told us that they preached throughout that entire island of Cyprus, which was hundreds of miles long. Then they took off from there. They went north to Perga. They sailed across to Perga. And if your Bible shows it, mine's shaded that this, this region is included in the Galatia region. And so our, our apostles have, act, have actually entered into the region of Galatia, southern Galatia. And now, as we're going to begin, look for Iconium. That's where the disciples are presently at, in Iconium. I'm looking at the map here. I had to, I had to look it up myself. Does anybody know what region of what we call this region now? Or what country this area is present day? Iraq? Yeah, the Iraqi area. I figured your kids would know. I was waiting for them to shout it out. They didn't have a map. Oh, I see them back there. What area are we in? He'll get it. It's Asia. It, it's in Asia. It's the Middle East. I had the country written down. I actually forgot it right now. I was hoping you were going to save me. Um, so let's, let's pick up here with the apostles in Iconium. If you remember, we're getting to Iconium because the apostles had just knocked off the dust from their feet um, in leaving Pisidian Antioch. They had, for the most part, been rejected in the preaching there, and they knocked off the dust from their feet, and they headed to Iconium. So Acts chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So I'm stopping there. As we've noted many times, this is the the custom of the apostles. They go to a town and they look for the synagogue and they enter the synagogue and they preach in the synagogue. And for the most part, they've been given the floor. They've been able to speak in all of these synagogues. But what caught my ear when I read this verse is that Luke says they spoke in such a manner that a large number believed. That's, that rings strange to my ear, that they spoke in such a way that people believed. And I kind of thought to myself, wow, has Luke become an Arminian all of a sudden? Um, why would he speak in such this way? I mean, we just came out of chapter 13, if you remember in chapter Acts chapter 13, verse 48, there the the apostles, it says, when they preached the gospel, it says that those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. There it gave us the reason for the belief was that they had been appointed to eternal life. Here, Luke says and records for us that they had preached in, in shared the gospel in such a way and in such a manner that many people believed. And obviously Luke is referring to the, to the manner in which they spoke, to the quality of which the apostles were preaching the gospel. And, and I kind of thought back, um, and, and maybe you're thinking in your mind, like what, what are the characteristics that we've seen of the apostolic preaching of the gospel that, was of, that would be of such a quality that, that many would believe. I first noted, and I was thinking of Paul's sermon that we looked at in chapter 13, 
where there it says he was convincingly proving that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures. And we looked at all of those scriptural references that Paul used to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Second characteristic is it's been mentioned multiple times. I I can't remember making much emphasis of it, but we'll see it again even in our text today, is that in multiple times the preaching of the apostles is described as being bold. They preach with boldness. Um, These are some of the characteristics that first came to my mind, is that their preaching is saturated with the scriptures, their preaching is bold, and this is the kind of preaching that God was pleased to use to save these in Iconium. Luke mentions here that, that there's the mixed multitude, and we've kind of noted, noted this in all the synagogues that they go to. There's the Jews, of course, but there's also the Greeks. The Greeks are the God-fearers, and there's that, that more committed group, the proselytes. It says that many believed, but then in verse 2 we have a but. There's the good news that many believed, verse 2, but... But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so this is, this is always the situation. As it always is, you're preaching the gospel. You're putting off an aroma of life to some. You're putting off an aroma to, of death to others. And so for, an, for a missionary, for an evangelist, This scenario, these kind of reactions are just par for the course. These are the reactions that are to be accepted and expected. If you want to go do mission work, if you want to show up in some random city, some random area, uh, if you're not ready for the opposition, if you're not ready for the rejection, you might as well just purchase a round-trip ticket out of the gate because it's going to be a short mission trip if you're not ready to be opposed. I'm sure every missionary takes off maybe primarily thinking of the the positive reactions and they're excited about people being converted and saved and that motivation is there and that's good and right and, and by the grace of God people are saved but you also must be ready expecting um, in, in essence without fail that there's going to be Opposition, And here we have opposition in, in the language that Luke uses here. These Jews are, are instigating, they're stirring up the Gentiles. It says they're poisoning their minds against the apostles. It's not a good place to be in when it's just two guys in the middle of nowhere, in, in essence, by yourselves. And, and these groups are stirring up the crowds against you. That's, that's a scary place to be. And in the, midst of, in the midst of this scare, I said here in my notes, I think verse 3 is humorous. Verse 3 is funny because Luke talks about the danger. Luke talks about the Jews stirring up the Gentiles to oppose the brethren. But notice in verse 3 the reaction of Paul and Barnabas. The opposition's coming. And then verse 3 says, so they remain for a long time. That's funny to me. That wasn't... In essence, what I was expecting, but after all, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is not scared. The Apostle Paul does not fear for his life. He's not deterred by the opposition. Even though these Gentiles and the Jews are being stirred up against him, Paul's idea is let's, let's buckle down and remain here for a long time. And that's I read it. I don't know if Luke intended to make us smile or not, but it's humorous. But it's also, it's also relaying this truth, is that we see here is that simply because there's opposition to the preaching of the gospel is not necessarily a sign that you should stop preaching the gospel or that you should leave to preach somewhere else. Sometimes... The apostles do that. As we just said, they kicked off the dust from their feet and went to another town uh, from, the, from the previous town they were in, was rejecting the gospel, so they left. 
Sometimes they stay and labor despite the opposition. And how do they decide which one? The Lord, the Lord must give the discernment in these instances. Notice verse 3 there. I mentioned it already. It, it describes the boldness of the apostles. It says they're speaking boldly for the Lord. They, they have a boldness. They have a zeal. They have a confidence. And it's ob- obviously, as we know, for the apostle Paul, it's not a prideful. It's not an, an arrogance. It's not a confidence that they have every answer for every question that might get thrown up. They're speaking for the Lord. Their reliance is on the Lord and His mercy and His grace and His protection. They're preaching in the power of His might, not in the might of their own. And speaking of His might, look at verse 3 as it goes on. What does the Lord do? They're preaching. The apostles are preaching. It says here that the Lord bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they're able to perform the miraculous. And here Luke gives us the specific reason that God is working these signs and wonders through the apostles. What are the signs and wonders? It says they're testifying to the word of His grace. So the Jews are opposing the gospel message, they're, they're really specifically opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus as Messiah, which is what Paul is preaching. The Jews, now the Gentiles are opposing, but God seeks to defend the legitimacy of the, the message. He authenticates the gospel of Paul and Barnabas by working these miracles through them. And so we can, I think these are some of the things that we just wish Luke would have included. Man, what exactly were they performing? What kind of miracles were they doing? Um, but even though they were doing the miraculous, even though God is revealing the legitimacy of Himself in this message through miracles, the amazing thing is, is that as we read on here, and, and, and never forget, Speaking of miracles, we've been talking to the children of miracles. The, the, the miracles do testify to, leg, to the legitimacy of the message, but due to the nature of sin, don't forget that there were those who knew that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. There were those who knew that the grave was empty, had no answer for it, and yet Instead of believing in the resurrection, they just came up with a lie, came up with a deception of of why that was true. Instead of repenting and believing in the resurrected Jesus, they still refused to believe in him. And in the same way, look at verse 4. The apostles are doing miracles, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews some with the apostles. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And so here we have another one of those situations where the apostles have to make this decision and they make different decisions. They're they're pursuing the spread of the gospel. They're feeling the heat of the persecution. They have to decide, are we going to stay or are we going to flee? Here, there's there's just a substantiated rumor that they're going to be stoned. And based on that, the apostles this time decide to flee. And that's what we see. We see Paul making different decisions throughout the book of Acts. The danger arises. Sometimes he stays and continues to preach the gospel. Sometimes he's already been attacked and he continues to preach 
for Jesus. We don't, I can't really think of an instance. I don't, we obviously haven't come across one yet. I mean, we don't get a lot of insight into how God directs Paul in making these kinds of decisions. We don't know how the Spirit, in essence, is, is working when Paul has, well, I can think of one example, right? Paul tries to go to Asia and it says the Spirit prevented him. So there's that instance which is pretty direct, pretty obvious. But we just don't get any insight into these kind of situations and how Paul's deciding to whether stay or move on. As you can imagine, every situation is, is unique. But, but I would just say this. As these apostles are, are pushing the gospel forward and they're having to make these decisions we should be able to say this. We should be able to say that as a missionary, as an evangelist, there is a liberty that you have to stay and suffer to preach the gospel, and there's a liberty to run for your life. We see the apostles having both options and taking both options, and I would say for us who are at home and comfortable and praying and supporting for those who are risking their lives for the gospel, that those decisions to stay or flee, we should leave with those brothers and sisters who are, who are there and who are making those decisions, and we should support their decisions, whatever they decide. Um, we shouldn't from home kind of play the, uh, what do they call it, the armchair quarterback? Is that what it's called, where you try to make these decisions from home? when you're not really in the game like they are. so. But we see, we see legitimate choices being made to do both. Sometimes they flee, sometimes they stay. Now let's continue on here because the apostles are going to enter. They fled Iconium. They're going to enter Lystra. And as I said, we heard about these miracles that they've been doing, and we want to know what kind of miracles are they doing. Well, we actually do get an example now of what kind of miracles they're doing. Verse 8 tells us, now the apostles are in Lystra. It says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, And seeing that he had faith to be made well, that word there, interestingly enough, to be made well, can also, and it is also used to be saved. Same word in context, it's either used to be be healed or to be saved. Here it's translated to be made well. Verse 10, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began Walking. Now, this this sounds eerily similar to a miracle of the apostle Peter from Acts chapter three. There you had the the lame beggar from birth. Same scenario. Paul, I mean, Peter is led to fix his gaze upon him, and he just commands the man to walk, and and he jumps up, leaps up, and is able to walk. Same miracle that Paul is able to perform that Peter has already performed. And and in this, we really see why uh, these examples of why we attribute to the Apostle Paul and why the Apostle Paul is able to take on that title of Apostle in what we we would call like a capital A Apostle. The Apostle Paul, you have all the characteristics of an apostle in Paul. He's, he's seen the risen Lord, the, the Lord Jesus, on his trip to Damascus, showed up, presented himself to Paul. There he called Paul to be an apostle. To be called by Jesus to be an apostle is a requirement. And now we see the, the miraculous being able to be performed through Paul. And I say that's a qualification because... 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, this is Paul, of course, speaking. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. 
So the signs of a true apostle, what we kind of categorize as a legitimate apostle, as a capital A apostle, was those who were given the ability to do signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate the message that they were preaching. And so you have again the miraculous. The miraculous is being performed. Let's see now the reaction to the miraculous. What's the reaction of the people as Paul shows up to the city? He's preaching the gospel, but he's able to raise this man who's never walked before. Verse 11 begins the reaction of the people. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 15. It says, When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. So let's stop here. Uh, the, the crowds, they see the miraculous nature, the miraculous ability that the apostles have. Their gut instinct, their interpretation of what's happening is they begin to worship the apostles. They think that their, that their gods have come down to visit them. They think that here they have Zeus and Hermes before them. And so... They bring in sacrifices for Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles see this, when they realize what's happening, they tear their robes. They cry out to the people, in essence, saying, stop this. We are, we are merely men just like you are. Again, this is the same, same scenario that the apostle Peter kind of fell into when he went to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10. As soon as he walks into the house, Cornelius bows down, prostrates himself before Peter. Peter has to say the same thing. He says, stand up. I too am merely a man. That's the only proper response for, for that's the right response for, for mere men not to accept worship, not to accept the adoration of other men in this way. You remember what happened to Herod when he mistakenly accepted this kind of worship. And so you have the apostles, when somebody bows down or somebody attempts to worship them, they quickly try to correct it. They quickly try to stop it. Um, you have even instances in the Bible where the angels, even the angels, people bow down before them and they say, do not do that. Do not worship me. Worship only God, they say. And so in stark contrast to the, way that, to it, in the way these mere men react to people trying to worship them, I think of the instances of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. These are good scenarios to keep in your mind as you think of the nature of Christ, as you think of who Jesus Christ is. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, it says, And those who were in the boat with him worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. And you'll note there that Jesus did not correct them. Jesus did not stop them from worshipping him. You have the similar thing when, when the resurrected Jesus shows up to Thomas and shows him his hands and his side. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And instead of correcting Thomas with this such language, he actually blesses Thomas. And so you see this stark contrast, this difference between mere men and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul and Barnabas do what's right here. They, they rightly reject the worship and they give this response to 
these Zeus and Hermes worshipers continue their response to these idolaters in verse 15. Paul says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news to you that you should turn from these vain things, these these made-up gods, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul has to begin his, in essence, his, his sermon, his preaching, his message to these people. He deals a little different with these polytheists than he did in Acts 13 with the Jews. Uh, he has to kind of take a step back. He has to kind of establish a more foundational truth with, with the polytheists. And he has to make the point that there is only one God, the Jews would have, of course, believed that there is only one God. But these polytheists don't even have that basic understanding of the reality that there's only one true God and that they must turn from their idols to this one and only true living God. Now being, and you do not see this in the ESV, and I've, I've kind of complained about this before, but being that Paul's ultimate authority, I don't care who he's, if he's talking to the Jews or if he's talking to the Gentile, Paul's ultimate authority, Paul's foundation for all of his knowledge of God is the Scriptures. And there in verse 15, that statement he makes concerning the one true and living God is actually a quote. It's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. If you had an NASB, the NASB helpfully calls out the quotes, it kind of indents it and puts it in all caps so you know it's a quote. But Paul here is actually quoting from Exodus chapter 20, interestingly enough, straight out of the Ten Commandments to describe who this God is, who is the living God. Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 says it's Yahweh, it's the Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul takes that quote from the law that it was actually a quote from the fourth commandment. The, he's, he's describing the, the God who created everything and was pleased to take a rest to admire his creation. This is the Lord. This is the one true and living God that that these polytheists need to turn to and believe upon. And I think that language Paul uses is a good description for, for what repentance is without, in essence, using the word repentance. He describes that the, the response that they need to have as turning from one's idols to the living God. That's a good description for what repentance is. That's a good description for what a, a, a true and right and acceptable conversion is. When, you, when you're confronted with the true and living God, you turn from your idols to that God. You put your faith and your trust in that God alone. So here Paul speaks as he goes on in verse 16. He's continuing to try to reason with these people. Verse 16, he says, In past generations, speaking of the Lord, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And so I I see parallel Uh, ideas between how Paul's reasoning here and in the same realities that he spoke of from Romans chapter 1 is how Paul's testifying that that even through nature, even through man's experience, God is testifying and has been testifying of himself to his creation, to his creatures. And so what do we see? What are we able to learn from nature, what are these men ex- expected to 
understand and believe from nature? Well, number one, that there is one true and living God. Secondly, that he is omnipotent. In his power, he's able to create the universe. And obvious, obviously, these, these people know a fraction about the, the expanse of the universe that we are aware of. Um, but even just from the earth and looking out and seeing the stars, the sun, the moon, the heavens, you're confronted with the all-powerful God, a God that's able to create like this and create things like this is a God to be feared. It is a God to seek. It is a God to find uh, safety from. And that's and the good news is that Paul also notes here that that this God is a good and merciful God. He's not simply a powerful God. He says he's a good and merciful God. And people are able to see this because God provides for us things like rain, food, even gladness is given to these polytheists, to these idolaters. God is merciful and he is good to all. And so the the question always is, when you speak about these things, even with the language Paul's using here, God has revealed himself to all. He's revealed himself as being the God. He's revealed his power. He's even revealed his goodness. But is that, is that enough? Is what God reveals through nature, is that enough for these idolaters to be made right with God, to find and to have peace with God. Obviously, obviously it's not. Obviously, if it was, the apostles would not have been risking life and limb to bring these guys the message of the gospel. If they could be saved by what they can see in nature, why would they risk life and limb to, in essence, repeat what's already been said? But in verse 15, it says that he and Barnabas are bringing the gospel to these people. They're bringing the good news to to these people that would not be necessary if the people could be saved without it. That's why Paul risks life and limb to ensure that these people have what they need to be saved. Paul continues trying to reason with them. But sadly, as verse 18 goes on, it says that even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. It's just getting worse and worse. Nobody's listening to them. The idolatry is continuing. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it gets worse. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Those are the cities the apostles just preached in or that have they've recently left those towns. They just preached the gospel in those towns, got ran out. Now they're following them, showing up where they're preaching now. And these Jews, it says, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So I think we really have to put ourselves in Paul's sandals here to really appreciate the sacrifice that he's making to spread the gospel because you try to relate to the, the scenario. You know, we read through the book of Acts and we just read through it. We, we burn through it. We, we burn through these statements and it's, it's, it's hard to stop and try to put yourself in Paul's shoes. So the Apostle Paul is having enough trouble dealing with the crowds that he's preaching to. They're trying to offer sacrifices. They're not listening. They're not, they're not seeing the truth concerning the one true God. That's problem enough. But now Paul has to worry about these Jews coming up from behind him to give him trouble. And, and 
They're not chasing him down with empty threats. The text says that they stoned him to death and dragged him outside of the city. And and from here on out, this is the Apostle Paul's life. He's dealing with the troubles of traveling in the the first city. He's dealing with the troubles of preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles who many times do not receive and persecute him. But not only is he dealing with the trouble before him as he moves forward, he's also worried the entire time about these Jews who are chasing him throughout the known world, coming up behind him and opposing him. The Apostle Paul, wherever he goes, leaves a trail of opposition, a trail of hate. And it's a hate that's so ferocious. You know, we talk about how arduous these journeys are in the first century These Jews are willing to make the same arduous, dangerous journeys that Paul's willing to make, but they're making this journey with the intent of killing the Apostle Paul. And so here, they think they've done it. They think they've accomplished their goal. They track him down. They stone him and throw him outside the city. For any wanting to be missionaries, I'm not, do you still want to be a missionary? This is just the first, the first trip. He's about halfway done with the first trip, and this is, this is the Apostle Paul's life. The good news is, when God is for you, who can be against you? Look at verse 20. So it ended, they... Dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Verse 20, but. But even though stoned to death, it says, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I think the comment, you read the, comment, the commentaries, they, they go back and forth. The text obviously doesn't explicitly say when I read this, I think the innuendo, I think the assumption here is that Paul's lifeless body, the Jews are not dumb. They think they killed him. They think he's dead. They suppose him for dead. I think when the disciples gather, he's miraculously raised up. That's my, that's my assumption here when I read this. And read what it says again. This is, this is Paul. I can't figure him out. He's miraculously raised up. He just got stoned to death. What does he do? It says he got up and entered the city. That's the city that just stoned him and threw threw him out. He got up and entered the city. Now, we've talked about these decisions the apostles have to make. Although Paul bravely enters Lystra again, I think he obviously realizes that they've done all they can do in this city. It appears, and it's time to take the gospel elsewhere. You know, Pastor Tim talked to us about when the Lord reveals to us, sometimes the answer is no. I think the Apostle Paul interpreted being stoned to death as, okay, I'll take that as a no, Lord. I'll I'll move on. I'm reading you loud and clear. And so from here, the missionaries are getting ready to head back home. They're going to make one last stop in Derby. Verse 20 continued again. This is crazy. I say this is miraculous because look what it says. On the next day. That's referring to the next day after being stoned to death. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So... They're starting their way back home. They're tracking through the cities, the, all these cities that they've already preached in. And did you catch it again? It listed the cities. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. These are the cities that just stoned Paul. Those, you know, Lystra stoned him to death. Iconium and Antioch are the cities that the Jews came out of to chase him down to stone him. So Paul is going right back to those cities that just stoned him to death. And I just note, um, can you imagine, well, I guess you can imagine now after reading it, but 
Consider the love for the church that the Apostle Paul has. It's second to none that this man would return to these cities that literally just tried to kill him. And for the sake of the churches, because that's why he's returned. That's why he's going back into those cities. He's not just making pit stops to fill up with gas. He's returning to these cities because that's where there's believers. That's where there's churches. And he's checking back in. The text is actually going to tell us here in a second. Paul's checking back in. Look at verse 22. This is what Paul's doing. It says that he's strengthening the souls of the disciples. And he's encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is Paul's message to the churches. That's a tough, that's a tough message as they look at their first example of what a Christian is. It's the Apostle Paul. It's somebody who is setting the highest standard for sacrifice, for commitment, for suffering. Paul's telling them, expect the same. Paul's not telling them, Christianity is is your best life now. Just the opposite. Paul prepares them for suffering. Verse 23, I want to point this out quickly. What else did Paul do besides just encourage them to be faithful? Verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is important to point out. Maybe not so much in our church, because our church understands this, our Our group of churches that we fellowship with all understand this, but there's many, many churches that do not feel and do not take note of the apostolic order for the churches. And it's good to see it. It's good to confirm this in your mind. But this is how Paul established churches. It says he appointed elders, plural, for for them in every church, singular, This is why we believe that it's ultimately God's uh, plan for there to be, as we call it, a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors. That word is used interchangeably, even in the book of Acts, notably Acts 20, if you're wondering. But elders, pastors, a plurality in every church. And that is, I don't know what churches you guys all grew up in. I grew up in a... Southern Baptist Church and denomination with uh, the single pastor model, right? That's all I knew uh, growing up was the single pastor model. I remember showing up in a Fort Worth to the first Reformed church that I had ever uh, attended, and they had multiple pastors, and I remember kind of being weirded out by that, like, what's, what's this all about? Like, some kind of cult or something? Like, this is weird. Um, but very quickly, I had just gotten saved. I had just started truly reading the Bible and, and, and trying to understand it. And so I show up to this church and I'm asking questions and just text by text by text by text, literally without exception, all of the New Testament churches have a plurality of elders. There's, it's without exception. And so very quickly, as with many other subjects, I realized, wow. I've been wrong my entire life about this, and so it was very helpful to see it. And I like it when the Bible has things like this that are without exception, right? So there's really not a question about this. Um, I had a, a lot of reasons for why a lot of churches don't follow this. I mean, it's as I said, it is without exception. It's always a plurality of elders in the churches. You know, it... it a lot of it goes back to just tradition. That's, as I said, that's all I knew. I, if I would have continued in that denomination, that's probably what I have kept doing. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of reasons why, why churches do that. There's, I know of single pastor churches where the pastor knows that's not right. But unfortunately, a lot of these 
and that's really what I know as Southern Baptists, but a lot of these churches where you have a single pastor, even though he knows something isn't right and he wants to change it, unfortunately, you have the deacon board. Everything runs through the, the deacon board really is the elders. They make all the decisions. The pastor submits to the deacons is how that ends up playing out. And the deacons, because they function as elders, they don't want to change that. So they, they ride that out. And that really seems to be kind of a problematic situation. And, and that just becomes a tradition. I'm assuming, I, I don't know, but it probably seems pretty nice to just pay one guy and not pay multiple guys. Maybe that's, maybe that's a reason. And then I think the worst scenario of all is these single pastors who, who maybe even know it's not right, but they like being that guy. They get to be the CEO, right, of, of this little business they have, and they have their employees. But we see here, even, even the early, in the earliest of churches, we see God's wisdom that there's to be a multitude of counselors, there's to be a multitude of elders, and, and, and why would God do that? Well, I think we can probably all say from experience, uh, even pastors are prone to wander. Even pastors are prone to compromise and, and make errors. And in the wisdom of God, he puts multiple men there to shoulder the load for accountability um, so that when, when a pastor goes astray, he doesn't take, take the church with him into his error. And a plurality of elders isn't always easy. I mean, I even know with the brothers here, I mean, me, Jason, Kinsey, even in the decisions that we've had to make, you know, since, um, I think probably every one of us at some time has had to submit our desires or our decisions to the majority, and we've had to do that for the sake of unity. And, and this is how, the God, how God wants it to be done in his church. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's right. Um, and lastly, I think it's, it's the reason a lot of pastors in the single pastor model don't persevere in the ministry is because they're, 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 they're shouldering that whole load themselves where there should be a plurality of elders to come beside him. That, that Moses model, as it's called, is not, not God's design. Even, even back then, was it, uh, what was Moses' father-in-law's name? Was it Jethro? Was it Jethro? Even Jethro knew all the way back then, that that's, that's not going to work. That's not, that's, not, that's not wise. So Paul appointed elders. Um, I, so I did want to make this point. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up here. I did want to make this point. And this is why sometimes, you know, I, I deal with the dating and the timing of these things. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it, it, it applies. So think about this. Most scholars say that this first missionary journey took anywhere from like a year to two years for the apostles to make, right? So think about this reality, and I point this out for, for our own edification and comfort, since we're lacking elders, is that these churches would have therefore probably gone about a year, right? When Paul preaches, Christians are made, the church is planted, and it's about a year before the Apostle Paul makes it back to him to appoint elders. So these churches go about a year without a pastor. So it, it, can, it can be done. The Lord will keep us just as he kept these churches until he, until he provides. So, so Paul's established leadership in these churches. They're able to return home back to their church in Antioch. For the sake of time, we, we won't turn back to our maps. Maybe we'll look at it later after church. But let me just close with, with the return here as they make it back home. Verse 24. It says, Then they passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. That's their home church. That's their sending church where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So the mission is complete. Paul and Barnabas just covered some 1,200 miles by land and by sea. They've been traveling for a year to two years. 
We're somewhere around A.D. 48 to 50. They've made it home. Let's see their reception here in the last two verses. It says, When they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And so this is the homecoming. Luke's only summarized. Luke has glossed over most of this trip. And so you can only imagine the stories that the apostles had to tell to the church. Right? Like this is a missions conference right here. The missionaries are back. The stories are, are shared. The good news, the bad news, the victories, the losses. And this is the first major endeavor to really do mission work outside of Israel to the, to the Gentiles. As we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 15, we start really, as the gospel goes to the Gentile, we really start having to deal with all the conflicts, with all the issues that result in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. There's all kinds of issues. There's, there's cultural issues. You've got Jewish Christians living in Gentile uh, lands. You have theological issues coming up. What, what's the place of the Jew and Gentile as, as God's people together? We've got practical questions concerning the role of the law in the life of the Jewish and Gentile Christian. All of these questions, basically for the rest of the book of Acts, we see these kind of difficult questions uh, getting worked out uh, throughout the book of Acts. As I said, we're halfway through the book. These questions, one of the biggest things that I that I see in the book of Acts, or, or I guess that kind of surprises me, something that, that I always just have to settle with, is how long. That's why I give the dating to kind of appreciate these, pro, these processes, these theological, these cultural, these practical questions, these issues that us looking back seem all obvious, right? We know all the answers because we have the book, right? But you see how long it takes for the church to work out all of these issues as the gospel goes forward, as you have Jews and Gentiles in the church together. It, it takes many, many years. They obviously don't have the communications, you know, that we have where we can speak to each other from hundreds of miles away. All this takes a very, very long time. And, and so I think, um, and we still see Similar questions still being worked out in the church today as as we argue over this, that, and the other. And none of these are are quick, quick things. But the Lord in his timing is, he's sanctifying his church, he's preserving his church. And throughout the book of Acts, he's primarily using this man, the Apostle Paul, to do all of this work. The Apostle Paul is an amazing man used by God in the most amazing ways. Apostle, he's not, he's not even ashamed to say it himself, right? I did more than all the apostles. He'll use language like that. So it's, it's just true. God chose to use. Don't forget that he was a Christian murderer. He was a murderer. And this is who God chose to use. So praise God. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you have recorded all of this historical fact in your word for us, Lord, that we can read about how how you saved all of these people, Lord, how you used a man like Paul who was once so blind but is now able to see, Lord, what an example, Lord, Paul said to follow him as he follows Christ. He is he is an example to be followed an example of of somebody who so believes. Paul so believed the gospel. Paul so believed your promises. He so believed your word that he was willing to lay down his life in every single way for the sake of the gospel. Lord, what a faith. We thank you that we have all 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 of these letters from the Apostle Paul, all of his insight, all of his philosophy, all of his theology, all of his worship. 
Lord, help us to think like Paul did. Help us to think of Christ as, as Paul was able. Help us to lay down our lives as this man was able to. What an example. What a, what a, what a high calling. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray your people will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.